You know, if you've sailed for very long, or if you've sailed at all, um, you're familiar with what's called a squall, and a squall is kind of this sudden blast of wind uh, that can't always be anticipated and can really get the heartbeat going if you're not ready for it. And um, they can be, yeah, they can be scary, they can be dangerous, they can even be deadly. Um, in May 1986, May 14, um, there was a boat, the Pride of Baltimore. In fact, uh, I had a neighbor the, the, um, living right behind our family was one of the 12 crew on this boat, the Pride of Baltimore. It was a 136-foot schooner. It was a handcrafted boat, a beautiful boat. It's one of those goodwill boats that goes around and represents Baltimore to the, to the different cities. And uh, it was caught in a squall about 240 miles north of Puerto Rico. Now, they knew the environment was, uh, was you know, kind of conducive for a squall, so they had, they had shorted their sheets. In other words, they had, they had trimmed their sails, brought them down so there wasn't so much sail area, so if the wind came on, it wouldn't have the same effect. Well, uh, all hands were called to the deck at 11 a.m., which means that everybody gets up on the boat, they harness themselves to the boat because that storm was coming, or they anticipated it, and it came, and it came with such force that the one mate said that he heard this intense whistling through the rigging, and the whole boat leaned over. This is a 136-foot boat. The whole thing leaned over, which a boat of that size and age and the a schooner, it would do that, but, but it kept staying over and staying over, uh, eventually filling up. They had to cut the harnesses, otherwise you'd be dragged to the bottom with the boat. And uh, within 60 seconds, the ship was submerged. It righted itself and just sank straight down. 60 seconds, a 136-foot boat. A squall of probably over 70, 80 miles an hour Pushed that boat over long enough to fill up. Four of the crew members were lost. Eight of them, my neighbor being one of them, uh, was floating in a leaky raft for four days, uh, only able to drink a little bit of water and biscuits that had floated up as the boat sank. After four days, uh, they were, by the grace of God, rescued by a Norwegian freighter uh, and, and saved and were able to tell about it. These squalls are serious, they're dangerous, they can be deadly. You see kind of, if you will, a similar story in the passage that we're looking at today in this story of Jesus walking on the water. This is another miracle story. Now, remember the form of a miracle story in Scripture is very simple. A miracle story, you'll always have a situation. It's usually a difficult, trying situation that the disciples are going to be in, and then you see Jesus come into that situation, and when he performs a miracle, it's displaying himself for the purposes that you would believe in him, and that you would find absolute, unequivocal hope, trust, faith in Christ, in Christ alone. So Matthew's holding Jesus up as king, and here this miracle story, if we understand it, will reveal something about Jesus that we're going to be able to say, he is worthy to be followed. He's worthy to be trusted. Now, we saw last week, last week you had the miracle of the the feeding of the 5,000 men, let's say 15 to 25,000 people. 
uh, the bread and the fish were just being created. Remember that? It showed his compassion. He taught the people the gospel. He healed their sick and he fed them. But I don't think the disciples fully understood it because we have another miracle following right on the heels of that miracle. And this, this miracle is going to display Christ in even greater power, even greater glory. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 14. We'll read 14, 22 to 33. 14, 22 to 33. Matthew records, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Uh, but, the, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Don't be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him saying, truly, you are the Son of God. So, miracle story, keep it in context. I want to talk about the scene first. I want to explain what's happening here, and then we're going to take a few minutes and look at the Savior of the scene. So the scene is this, that Jesus says, okay, immediately get in the boat. Remember last week, they had fed all those people, they gathered up all the leftovers, 12 baskets, right? So they cleared all the tables, if you will, and immediately following, immediately following. So there's no delay, there's no hesitation, there's no let's just sit and kind of hold our stomachs and, and just think, wow, what, how nice it is to be full. Immediately, he says, get in the boat and go. Now, what's going on here? Well, if you were to look in John's Gospel, in the same miracle story, chapter 6, you would find that the crowds were ready to take Jesus by force and make him king. He's just fed us. I mean, he'd be a great king, a king feeding us. And, and I, I think that may be part of it, but not all of it. I think Matthew focuses more on Jesus wanting to lead them to a test. In other words, Jesus says to them, immediately get in the boat. Now, you remember in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus said, let's go to the other side. And when they crossed the lake, they met the storm. You remember from last week in, in chapter 14, he led them into the wilderness knowing that they had no food. And so here he is, he's immediately saying, hey, let's get in the boat. You're going to go to the other side. Now listen, he wasn't with them. And remember now, the Sea of Galilee is such that on the northern rim, it's surrounded by mountains. And so it really can quickly kick up into a squall. And, and so he gets and has them get in the boat, go to the other side. Now, the reason I think that he is moving them into a test of faith, the reason I think that he is trying to train them up in the faith is because of a few things. First, the immediacy of it, the urgency of it, I would say. Would in, why so fast? Why not just delay a little bit? But also, there's this little word 
He says that he made them get into the boat. And, and that Greek word has a force to it, a compulsion. He's commanding them, you get in the boat and you leave now. So Jesus is giving a clear command that there's, there is a time issue. I want you to leave right now. And so they went up there. But even more so, in Mark's gospel, in chapter 6, it says this, that after the, after the, the miracle happened, in 652, it says, immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Same language as Matthew's. So Mark and, and Matthew are speaking about the same event. It says, and he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. So in other words, the disciples, even after seeing all that took place with the loaves, they didn't get his power. They didn't get his glory. They didn't understand Jesus to the degree that Jesus wanted them to understand him. And so Jesus is going to say, well, here's round two. We're going to learn who I am. Now notice, though, that Jesus doesn't go in the boat with them. See, Jesus is a year away from dying and ascending. And so Jesus wants them to walk by faith in the midst of a troubled and difficult world. And so he's preparing them for it. He's strengthening them for it. It's not surprising, or it shouldn't be surprising to us, that in fact much of the early Christian literature always had boats. I mean, when you walk through some of the, when I went to Israel and you go to church after church, they all have boats. There's a picture, a mosaic, something. There's always a boat with people in it in the midst of a storm. Because that's the nature of Christian life. It is, it is natural for us to encounter difficulties and challenges throughout life. That's the way it's going to be until we see him. That's the way it's going to be while this world is under the control of the evil one, according to 1 John. That's the way it is. And so Jesus is preparing them for that. And I think we need to be prepared. So when you just look at this scene, they're in the boat. It is high winds. They're being driven off course. They were only going to go around. Many people think that Bethsaida was where the miracle took place. They were going back to Gennesaret, which was just around the corner, but we find them in the middle of the sea. So you know that the winds were terrible, driving them off course. So it's a very difficult situation here. But, but what we want to draw from this scene here is, number one, trials, the difficulties, are not haphazard in our lives. You, you, you have to, really been praying that you would grab this, almost reorient the way you think. They're not haphazard. God has a divine direction, a divine plan to the things that we are going through. I mean, they aren't a result just of random events. They aren't even a result of, often they aren't a result of our disobedience. You notice they were obedient. They obeyed the Lord. And here they are in the midst of a jam. I mean, a lot of times the obedience that we have to Christ will get us in a trial or get us in a corner that will be difficult. I mean, think about it with me. If this isn't true, if it isn't true that trials for the Christian are under the hand of God, what's the alternative? The alternative is that it is haphazard, that it is random, that your life is hanging over a fire, that that there's no divine sovereignty, there's no divine direction, that you're subject to the whims and the wills of other people or any other thing. I mean, can you imagine if you really believe that, how precarious life would be, how difficult it would be to get out? of bed in the morning. David, in Psalm 42, in the midst of his trial, here's what he says. He says, 
all your waves and all your breakers have gone over me. Even David, using the imagery of this water, say, they're your waves, God. They're your breakers. I mean, the issues I'm in, they're under your direction, under your hand. Folks, this, this will comfort us because he's merciful and he's kind. This, this should comfort us, not just, the direction of the hap, not just the direction of the trial, but in fact the timing of it. You know, the timing of it. Do you realize that Jesus waited until the fourth watch to go? That is between 3 and 6 a.m. This fourth watch, they were striving out there for hours. They were really pulling against the oars, working against the wind. So Jesus didn't immediately deliver them from the trial. But we know this in the gospel, right? When Jairus, remember Jairus, he was a synagogue ruler. He comes to Jesus and says, hey, my daughter's dying. Please come and heal her. And so on his way there, he runs into this woman with the issue of blood. She'd been bleeding for years and years and years. And he stopped and he ministered to her. Well, while ministering to her, the girl dies. And the servant comes and says, don't trouble the master anymore because your daughter has died. Jesus delayed and it caused death. You don't need to fear the delay. He goes and heals the child. Or you say the same thing with Lazarus, don't you? I mean, Lazarus is sick. Let's go to him. No, we're going to wait a few days. Well, we wait a few days, what happens? Well, Lazarus dies. But there's greater glory. There's greater glory in God being displayed. We're going to see the same thing here. Be careful. Be careful to be. Be too presumptuous on God delivering us in our timetable. Alexander McLaren, a Scottish minister of the 19th century, said, heaven's clock goes at a different rate than our little timepieces. You have to remember, God understands time far greater than we do. So first, trials are not haphazard. They're under God's divine direction. Secondly, trials are not meant to destroy your faith, but actually to develop them. You know, the one thing that trials do, and I think if anybody has gone through any wave of difficulty, it does reveal who we are. It does kind of reveal what we're made out of. I mean, these disciples had, well, let me start with us. We tend to overestimate our spiritual vitality. I think we have, many of us here, have an unfounded optimism about how strong we are in spiritual terms. I think it was found out, at least in their lives, as they're terrified, not even recognizing Jesus, thinking he's some phantasm, I mean, thinking he's some ghost, it it reveals how they needed to be developed. And when you and I go through financial difficulties, or we go through marital struggles, or, or struggles with kids, or even struggles with our own personhood, I mean, it reveals who we are. God's doing this for a purpose, that we would be running to him, seeking grace, See, there's this cycle that we have to get down in the Christian life. He leads us into crises, but then he delivers us. He leads us into crises, but then he delivers us. And this incremental moving from faith to faith, that even Luke was talking about beholding Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So he's seeking to develop us through the trial. He's committed to maturing the Christian, and it's through the trials that he does it. I mean, if you get in your mind right now one person, that you respect spiritually. So perhaps it's a parent, perhaps it's a friend, perhaps it's someone in this church. But you have somebody in your mind that you really know they are spiritually strong. And I'm sure the majority of them, the vast majority of them will have been through trials. You'll have chosen a person that has suffered well and has come on the other side and they've been faithful. 
that they have. You know, it's like getting in a boat with just a, a kind of a sun-baked face of a sea captain. You know, you know he's been through squalls. You know he's been through difficult sailing experiences. That's the guy you feel comfortable with. Or, or a sergeant that's been in battle, that's led a platoon, understands the threat of war. I mean, that's who you want to find. That's what he does for us. He just constantly begins to incrementally mold us. John Newton, of course, he was delivered from the sea by God's grace. He said this. He said, uh, remember, the growth of a believer is not like a mushroom, but it's like an oak, which increases slowly indeed, but surely many suns and showers and frosts pass upon it before it comes to perfection. In a winter, when it seems to be dead, it is gathering strength at the root. Be humble, watchful, diligent in the means, and endeavor to look through all, to fix your eye upon Jesus, and all will be well. That's the nature of our faith, that it is fraught with trials. And we, the Christian, living in this culture, in this time, in this season, in this country, I think we have been deluded to think that we are somehow beyond these things. That's the first, that's the scene. It's a scene for them and it's a scene for us. Okay, now what happens is Matthew then shifts to tell us about this Savior. And I like the way he set this miracle story up because, you know, when we're in trials, one of the first questions I'm usually asked is where do you think Jesus is in this? We want to know Jesus' location when we're in the fire. We want to know where he is. And I think Matthew displays it for us here beautifully. I want to give you five things to remember when you're in trial. Perhaps you're in it right now. Perhaps you're, you, well, or you will be in it. So either we're in it or we're going to be in it. And five things I want you to remember from this story here. Number one, I want you to remember when you're in trial that Jesus is appealing to God for us in the midst of the trial. Notice what happens when he immediately puts them in the boat. What does he do? He immediately goes to the mountain to pray. Now, Jesus praying by himself was not anything. It wasn't a shock or a surprise. You see it in Mark 1. You see it in Luke 5. You see it in Luke 6. Jesus made a regular pattern of praying by himself for God. It was a a time of communion with God where he is strengthened by the reality of his Father in heaven. And it would often preclude big things that he was to do. So Jesus prayed. But, but notice the quickness in our text. Immediately he made them get in the boat. After he dismissed the crowd, he went up on the mountain to pray. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan writer, says this. He says, when the disciples went to see, their master went to prayer. I'd almost propose to you that him going to prayer so quickly that they went to see, he's praying for them. I think he's praying for them. It isn't just personal prayer. He pulled out his personal prayer list. I think he was praying for them. And this wouldn't be unique because we know in Mark's gospel, it says he saw them struggling. He saw them struggling in Mark 6. He saw them struggling. Think about it. When we're in the midst of the trial, he sees it. He's aware of all these things and he's appealing to the Father for us. We know in Luke 17, he appealed to God for his disciples. But listen to how he appealed to God for his disciples in Luke 22. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I've prayed for you all, plural, that your faith may not fail. Think about that. I mean, does that not change the way we perceive trials? 
But Jesus Christ is appealing at the right hand of God. There is no interruption between the Son at the right hand and the Father on the throne. He's appealing to us that our faith would not fail. We have the same thing in Hebrews 7, 25. We read, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. The trial will not be the undoing of your faith. The trial may bring you to great points of of low and despair, but he is able to save you completely. You will not fail in faith because he intercedes for you. This is, I'm asking you to believe this. This is a life of faith that we live. So in trial, you're remembering that he is making intercession for you. So whatever trial you're in, you don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. We always want a light at the end. Anybody can go through a trial when there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Golly, you know where to go. It's when there's no light that he's interceding for us. And this is where McShane, I just have Scots for you today, a bunch of Scottish preachers, and I'm quoting, but here's what he said, and I quoted this a few weeks back, but it bears repeating. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies, and yet distance makes no difference because he's praying for me. So that's the first thing I want you to remember. In trial, remember, he is interceding for you. You think you're alone. That's what trials do. Trials isolate us. Trials make us feel. Nobody knows what I'm going through. Nobody knows how I feel. Nobody knows the pain I'm going through. Everybody else has a perfect life. Everybody else's children are perfect. Everybody else has it all working. And we feel this kind of retraction to a point of great loneliness. You're not alone. He is appealing to the Father for you. That's the first thing. The second thing is, in trial, remember that Christ remains sovereign over all things. Look at the text. It's remarkably simple. He says, and Jesus came walking on the water. Now, that's incredible. Nobody walks on water. I mean, we only use the expression as an expression, right, for something impossible. Oh, you could probably walk on water. I mean, nobody walks on water. Only God walks on water. And we see this in Job chapter 9. Job says, He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He's the maker of the bear and Orion and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. Only God can walk on water. And yet Jesus is approaching them, walking as the water hardens beneath his feet as if it's a pavement. And he's displaying that he alone, he shares the glory with God and being sovereign over all creation. That Jesus in the flesh is able to do everything the Father can do. Everything. He's sovereign. He can make loaves and fishes, and he can walk on water. There is nothing. In other words, this miracle story is to remind us that in the midst of our trial, there is nothing that we can say he can't do. In other words, well, he can do this, and he can do this, and he can do this, but, yeah, but he couldn't do that. That now has been removed. I I mean, when you look at this scripture, it is told with simplicity. It is. He just says he walked on water. Now, when liberal theologians would see a passage like this, I, I don't agree with the theology of these liberal theologians, but I do love their ingenuity. Remember last week? Last week, 
last week the miracle of the loaves and fishes, right? Remember the guy that, well, he just took a few of these pita pockets and he broke it up into 5,000 communion wafers. I mean, really? I mean, that's all you have? That's the whole game you've got? Okay, so this one, this is, this is even better. What Jesus was doing was that he was walking on a sandbar. Now, they were, he was out to sea. I think that sea has been fairly well mapped out. There are no sandbars in the middle of the sea. I realize there are sandbars in places you don't expect sandbars. I've run into them in sailboats. Very embarrassing. But, but they, they would say there's a sandbar as if he's walking and his feet are just going below the surface of the water. It's a sandbar. I mean, and then what does that do for Peter? Peter's sinking in something, and he's right next to Jesus, so is he sinking in, like, quicksand? Or what is it there? And I am just amazed at, and this gives me a greater confidence in the integrity of the Scriptures that Matthew's not trying to defend it. He just says he walked on water. Now, if I'm going to write something that I know is going to be hard to believe, and it's not true, I'm going to write in a way that I'm going to anticipate the objections you'll have, and I'll explain myself so that I can win the argument, that I can have you believe it. But there's no defense. He just walked on the water. It's the way it is. He walked on the water. I mean, the winds and the waves are servants to Christ. They firm up as he walks. Because all creation does its bidding unto the Creator. In Colossians chapter 1, we're reminded, he says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, and visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and this is important, and in him all things hold together. So again, the trials, we want to remember the sovereign control. Now, this doesn't mean he's going to deliver us in every trial, but he's in control of every trial. That's what we need. Okay, the third thing I would have you remember is that in trial, in trial, remember that it's an invitation to believe. In trial, you are being invited to believe in the midst of your trial. So here's Jesus walking on the water to them. And what do they think he is? Well, they think he's a ghost. He's a phantasm. They're terrified. They're screaming. This isn't the cry of fear that you hear when kids go on a roller coaster. I mean, this is something beyond our imagination is coming toward us. They are freaking out in fear. Now, you could ask the question, why are they so scared? Didn't they recognize him? No, they didn't recognize him. They didn't rec- and that's part of the problem, isn't it? They didn't recognize him because they didn't believe he could walk on the water. Yeah, he can do some fishes. He can do some loaves. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, he can heal some people. Maybe they were getting better anyways, and he just finished it off. But they didn't believe he could walk on the water. And so they're terrified that he's a ghost. He's not the real deal. And look at the graciousness of Jesus Christ. Folks, I really do, and last week I hit this regarding the compassion, I really think we give him a a bad due sometimes when we just assume he's out to punish us every time we do something wrong. He's very compassionate to their disbelief, to their unpreparedness. What does he say? He says, don't be afraid. It's I. It's I. In other words, and and the way the Greek is formed, it could be translated, I am. In other words, he is coming up to them, introducing himself in the exact manner that God introduced himself to Moses from the burning bush. And he does this to comfort them. 
to assure them, to lift them up so that they might trust, that they might believe in him, that they might walk by faith in the midst of the trial. But then you see the lens kind of narrow down to Peter. He's going to take it a step further. Peter, I love Peter in this scene. I mean, whatever you say about Peter, he's a great guy. I mean, he really is. Out of all 12, he says, Lord, command me to come out on the water. Command me to do it. And so Jesus, come. Can you imagine? I mean, Jesus is bidding him to come. He's bidding him to believe is what he's doing. Yes, everything seems like it's going to heck in a handbasket, but no, come, believe. That's what he's saying. He's bidding us to come. And Peter did. Can you imagine throwing his leg over the side of the boat? I mean, nobody else is putting their toes in the water. He throws his leg over the side of the boat, and can you imagine when it hits something solid? And the implication is that he was walking. He's the only human being to ever walk on water outside of Christ. And he's walking to him. I mean, it, the, before we get to the sinking, which we always get to, and we should, I just want to stop. Look what faith can do. I mean, look what faith can do. To truly focus on Christ and walk by faith, he's walking on water. Is this an anomaly? Is this just, well, it happened once in the Bible? Didn't Jesus say, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can, be, you can say to the mountain, be taken up and removed into the sea? In fact, in Mark's gospel, and I didn't recognize this, you know, the nature of scripture, you read it, you read it, you read it, or in Matthew 17, excuse me, Jesus says this, he says, he says um, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. He says, nothing will be impossible for you. I, I never saw that before. This, this kind of bidding us to believe, to believe whatever it is you're facing right now. Again, not to presume God's deliverance has to look like this. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying to believe that you can do things for the kingdom, for his glory, that you're not capable of. Peter in Peter at least with the gifts and the strengths that he has, cannot walk on water, but by faith he can. And so Jesus says in John 14, Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I'll do it. Folks, this is a clear call. Clear call. Well, I think, for me at least, initially, it was a clear conviction that I really don't think about faith to the degree that I need to. In fact, J.C. Ryle, the uh, 19th century Anglican pastor, he said this, he said, um, it shows us what great things our Lord can do for those who hear his voice and follow, things that you are not capable of. So many times you get into ministry because, yeah, I'm a gifted, we'll teach a Bible We'll teach a Sunday school because I'm a teacher. You know, I have the natural gifts to do what the ministry requires. But have we done those things that, only, that we couldn't do unless God helped us? Is there any ministry experience that you have attempted that you couldn't do unless he helped you? I mean, what does it require? Well, it requires faith because we know and you know you don't have the, the gears to do it. But, but it's a clear call, isn't it? Isn't it a challenge to us? It's a good challenge, I think. I love this challenge. I love the challenge because it kind of bids me out of the boat a little bit, if you will. So in trial, remember, in your trial, whatever the situation is, he's asking us to believe. 
Okay, in trial, fourthly, in trial, I think we have to remember that his compassion is great even when we fail. This is where we get to Peter. His compassion is great even when we fail. So Peter, he's got a rousing start. He's out of the boat. He's moving. You don't see anybody else getting out of the boat behind him. So, you know, he's clearly walking by faith. And then all of a sudden, what happens? He loses focus. He gets distracted. It says he sees the wind. Now, folks, nobody sees the wind. You can't see the wind. What's he saying here? Well, he's saying that he's taking his eyes off of Christ. He's not looking at Christ. He's looking at the effects of the wind, the waves, and he's hearing it. Perhaps he's looking back to his disciples still staying in the boat. Maybe they're not so sure that that water's going to remain firm. And so you see Peter begin to doubt. The distractions, he loses his gaze, and he begins to doubt, and he begins to sink. His faith is weak. But what does he do? Even with weak faith, he says, Lord, save me. And notice we get another immediate. Immediately, Jesus reaches out and saves him and and brings him in the boat, puts him in a place of safety. Jesus, by the way, didn't rescue him from the water. He rescued his faith. That's what he did. He, He rescued his faith, his compassion, gracious Jesus rescued Peter's faith. So many of us, I think we kind of beat ourselves down when we fail in faith. And we don't realize, just Lord save me. Spurgeon called this Peter's shortest prayer. Lord save me. Lord save me. It's really a prayer a Christian should pray. Lord save me. When we don't know what to do, when we feel over our heads, literally, Lord save me. And and, and then, then the fifth thing I'd ask you to remember So in trial, let me go back to the first one. In trial, remember that he is interceding for you. He's appealing to God for you. In trial, remember that he's sovereign over all of creation. Remember that there is nothing he cannot do. In in trial, remember that he's bidding you to believe in him. In other words, instead of clenching your fists and holding up, he's asking you to believe and step out of the boat. In in trial, he's bidding us, really, he's... He's assuring us that even when we falter in faith, that we can still cry out to him and he'll save us. And then in trial, uh, in trial, remember that, that he is revealed, I think uniquely in the midst of our anguish and trial and struggle. He's revealed in it. So he gets in the boat and the wind stops. You do notice he didn't even tell the wind to stop. It just stopped. It just finished. And that's when they look at him and they say, truly, you are the son of God. Truly, you are the Son of God. It took the trial to reveal to them that he was the one that he said he was. Trials enable us to see Christ for all that he's worth. Let me just give you one more McShane quote. This guy, Robert Murray McShane, great guy, only lived till he was 29 years old. And uh, yeah, he just had a, he had a way of saying things. He says this, he says, affliction brings out graces that cannot be seen in a time of health. It is the treading of the grapes that brings out the sweet juices of the vine. And so it is the affliction that draws forth submission, weans us from the world, and gives us a rest in God. And so he says to his church, use afflictions while you have them. Don't run from them. Steward them. Use them so that you might see him in greater glory. Use them. They're, gonna, they're under his sovereign hand. They're used to develop your faith and to see Jesus as the Son of God. Now, let me remind you that, that, 
So here you have a scene, you have a scene of great trouble on the lake, and then you have a Savior, a Savior who's great. And so in trial, we can remember all these things we've just gone through. But I think there's something more going on here. Remember now, all the things that Jesus has been doing. Okay, you talk about not just the deliverance from the lake, you're not just talking deliverance from the hunger in the wilderness, you're not just talking about when Jesus saved them from sickness and demonization and so forth. All those things are just evidence for you that this world in which we live is broken, separated from God, at odds with its creator. That's what we're to perceive and understand through all these things. Now, Jesus has come. So, so what I'm saying is they're just symptoms of a greater problem. So what I'm saying is that immigration issues or issues of health or issues of radical Islam, they aren't the greatest problem that we face. Govern- it's not the greatest problem we face. Societies have faced these or related issues forever. The greatest problem we face is that we are part of a system that is at odds with God. And, and there has to be this reconciliation between God and us for there to be peace and harmony, and shalom, and wholeness. That's the bigger problem. Now, folks, we are distracted by all the problems that we have in this life. And many of these problems, I grant you, are very difficult. But I'll remind you, they're temporal. They're all temporal. And they point to a greater problem. Just as Jesus' healings, all of Jesus' healings, they were temporal too. But they pointed to something greater. So all the times he fed them, even delivering Peter, Peter will still end up being crucified. So all the deliverances, they're all temporal, but they point to something greater. They point to him being the Son of God. It is interesting that they recognize him in this deliverance as the Son of God. Now fast forward with me to the end of Matthew, or even in Mark's Gospel. When the centurion is standing at the foot of the cross, Jesus has been crucified. He has administered the crucifixion. And he sees Jesus and the way he acted and the words he said. And what does he say? He says, truly, you are the Son of God. He says the same thing. He sees in the crucifixion of Christ the deliverance of which this is only pointing to. So the reality for us is not just to be mesmerized by this miracle on the sea, but to see this as a flashlight shining to the greater act of deliverance that we all need. This is how we respond to the Savior. Not that he's going to help me out of a jam next week or to firm up financial uncertainty or to bring about health Even if you have cancer and we pray for you to be healed, guess what? You're still going to die. This is the issue we need to deal with. Jesus, the Son of God, as displayed on the cross. We sang it. So what do we do with this? Well, first off, we have to ask ourselves, are we Christian? Am I a Christian? You You know the Christian because he's the one who's already prayed, God, save me. Lord, save me. The Christian understands his need to be delivered from sin. That's why he says, Lord. You know, when we say Lord, what does it mean to say Lord? Well, it means that he's the sovereign one sent by God to deliver us from sin. When they picked his name Jesus, said, why Jesus? You know, why not some other name, Joseph or some other relative? He says, because he will save his people from their sins. This deliverance on the lake was a picture of him saving them from their sins. The Christian says, Lord. And when we say Lord, we just don't mean master. We, we mean the one who can deliver us back to God, reconciled 
forgiven, adopted. And to save me doesn't mean to deliver me out of the temporal dilemmas that I'm in, but to truly redeem my soul that forever I'm with God. And me, it isn't just something we do corporately, but there is each person needs to individually understand I am apart from God and I need to be delivered. Now, if you're not a Christian here, I, I would ask you to look at the circumstances of your life because I, would be the, I want to be the first one to tell you that the difficulties you face are not just haphazard, they're not just random, they're not just God being mean, they're all actually graces to you. They're graces to you to wake you from the stupor that this life is all there is. They're to wake you up to the reality that we're all going to stand before God one day. There is, there is this judgment of all things at the end. And this Jesus, Lord, save me, is to save me from that, to save me from myself. Now, for the Christian here, I, I have different encouragement for you. You know, so I've been here over 15 years, and I think I know the bulk of you pretty well. Um, most of you have come after me. The majority of you have. And, uh, and I think with most of you, I actually know a lot of the issues because when I pray through the membership list in the morning, I try to do, uh, Lauren very kindly has put every member of this church on every day of the week on every month. So every day we pray through your names as they come alphabetically. And as I pray through them and the staff has the list, uh, then I think about what you're currently walking through. And uh, I know that many of you are really going through quite a bit. And, um, and when, when I think about it, I think about it, at least for our purposes here, uh, I think about it in categories. So marriage. Marriage. I, I know that many of us, you know, marriage is a struggle. It is. It's, it's hard. Either you want to be married or some of you don't want to be married, and you are married. Uh, there is a lack of love, a lack of communication. There is, um, there is a degree of obtuseness, insensitivity. Uh, there is a harshness. There's a distrust in, in many uh, that they, they don't feel that they can really trust. There isn't a safety that should be present in marriage. And that is a real trial in this life. There's no doubt about it. It's to be a, a relationship displaying the image of God as Edgar prayed, but, but it all, it, or displaying Christ in the church, but it doesn't. I think there's parenting issues, right? Many of our children are struggling. They are. They're struggling with who they are. They're struggling with, with perhaps health issues. They're struggling with just fitting in. And you know as a parent, when your child struggles, it amps it up or it feels it amps it up about 10 times and you struggle that much more. Or even kids, you struggle because your parents don't get along or you're not comfortable or you don't feel safe or they don't talk. Or it may not be that it may be financial, the job market, the uncertainty, the Dow goes up 300, it comes down 300. What's going to happen? Is we're going to have another near collapse again. You know, what about this environment? Many of us have global issues, right? We have this uncertainty. You know, France spreads out 10,000 soldiers in their country. What's that mean for us? How's it going to happen here? These sleeper cells, they're going to wake. You know they're going to wake. Things are going to happen. How do we handle that? It begins to really, really concern us. How can you try to stop that sort of thing? There's no way. Or, or, or you look at your own, your own health issues. You may be facing crises in health. I mean, I don't know what you're going through. Some of you are battling some true health issues. If they're not true health issues like cancer, they may just be the degenerating nature of our bodies and the fatigue and the distraction and the trouble. They have. So, or personally, you may just not like yourself. 
You wish you were different. You want to be that person. So, I mean, you, you and I know those are the categories that we as a church fall into. So what do we do with that when you see this kind of passage? How do we take this passage and apply it to these issues? Well, number one, I would say, look at Jesus. I mean, look at him. And I don't mean that just visually, but I mean with your mind, with your contemplation. To consider him. Remember that he's praying for you. He's appealing to the Father. Go to Hebrews 7.25. Imagine that. If it's true, it's happening. Walk by faith. Get out of the boat. Say to yourself, if he can walk on water, if he can feed the thousands, he can surely sustain me. He can help me. Even if you fail in faith and you say, you're right, you're right, I haven't believed, I've been distracted, then just repent. He's forgi- he says that he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is a compassionate Savior. So look to Jesus. Secondly, I would say that in facing these things, confront your fear and your doubt. In other words, it is that these guys were not superheroes. They weren't. They faltered. They're good examples for us. We're going to fail in faith. They did and so will we. But don't languish in the failure. Don't languish before the fear. In other words, confront it. Remind yourself of who Christ is. You know, it's interesting in Scripture, as compassionate as Jesus always is, even with the man. Remember the man, his son, the disciples couldn't heal him. Jesus said, do you believe? He says, I believe, help my unbelief. This, it's this guy that's totally twisted. It's like all of us. I think I believe, but I don't really believe enough. You know, you're back and forth. Jesus never, he never pampers us in unbelief. He says, where is your faith? Oh, you have little faith. Why would you doubt? Jesus does challenge our lack of faith. And you need to challenge it as, as well. You need to remind yourself of the truth of God. Go to Psalm 56. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God, I trust and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Ask yourself that question. What can they do to me? So you've got God and you've got a mere mortal. Who are you going to go with? Thirdly, remember the sovereign power. Remember the sovereign power. In other words, when you're facing these things, what can he not do? Now, as I said, I don't want to set up some false healing philosophy here. He doesn't always deliver us out of the immediate dilemma, but he sustains us in it. He's able to protect our minds, guard our hearts, that we wouldn't be found faithless. And then the last thing I would say, just in conclusion, is to worship. Can you worship him? Can In the midst of the trial that you just say truly he is the Son of God, and you turn to him and worship. So many of us, I think we get in these straits and we, we walk away from worship, and we'll go back when things are straight again. Now, I think we've got to give him a sacrifice of praise. We have to worship him in the midst of it. So let's do this. Uh, you've got the scene, you've got the Savior, and I've challenged you on a few things with these trials. So let's take a few minutes of silence and what this time is for you to speak to God about these issues. It may be confession, it may be thanksgiving, but you are speaking to the Lord on these issues, and then uh, Larry's going to close us in, a f- in just a few minutes.